0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from the book of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. The word of God speaks to us. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is God's word to us.
1: Good morning. morning. It's good to see you guys today. Happy Easter. Easter. Oh, man. You did it for Dylan, and that was too much, huh? (laughs) Happy Easter. Oh, man. Hey, I'm glad to see you guys. My name is Chad Kintzer. I serve as one of our pastors. If you are here uh, as a family member or as a visitor out of town, maybe this is your first time with us, hey, I'm really, I'm really glad that you're here to share, share Sunday with you. If you're here today and uh, you're a longtime follower of our Lord Jesus, or, or maybe you're not sure what you believe about the claims of Jesus, or maybe you know that you don't believe in Jesus, all the same, it's a privilege to share uh, this moment with you and to open God's word with you. Um, if you've got a Bible, open up to um, John chapter 10, the passage that was just read. And as you're opening there, we move to prayer. Uh, when we were in our welcome time in the nine o'clock service, I walked across the room. I saw a, a friend of mine and we're shaking hands and he saw I had the mic on to preach today. And he says, hey, don't, don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. And I just said to him, hey, my sermon might be garbage, but the tomb is still empty. The, the, the tomb is still empty. So whatever's going to happen today, Jesus is not dependent on this sermon to empty that tomb. And so uh, that's actually really good news for us, isn't it? Lest we think that this thing is rising or falling on anything that we do, uh, we've been mistaken. Everything about what we've come together here for today hangs on that man from Galilee in his empty tomb, and that's a safe place to be. That's a safe place to be. So with that, I want to pray into that. I want to come in behind that, and I want to preach behind that today. And so uh, pray with me. I'll pray for you, and we'll get to work. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And we come today, Jesus, and we come today, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, our resurrected Lord. And my prayer today, my prayer as we open your word is that we would have a fresh encounter with you, that what we talk about here wouldn't just be us discussing a claim from scripture, but that the claim of your word would make claim on us. That we would be formed by you. That we couldn't help but leave this room today and say, surely he is risen indeed. God, I'm asking even for this 11 o'clock service, would you help us to have a moment like those disciples on that first Easter morning along the road of Emmaus that they would say, surely our hearts burned within us as the word was opened to us. Would the only voice on display here in the next 30 minutes be the voice of our resurrected King Jesus. And we offer this prayer in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, everybody wants to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's a famous song lyric. It's been picked up by several different artists, and it's hard to track down the exact source of where that lyric comes from, the first person who said it. And I think it's fittingly anonymous. It's fittingly anonymous, and the reason is because that sentiment is actually a sentiment that lives in all of us. Everybody wants the good life. Everybody's after the good life, and most everyone in our moment feels entitled to the good life. But nobody wants to die. Everybody defines the good life a bit differently, and whatever definitions you might have, there are some common threads I think that we could pick up across the room if we were to pull even this room. Some of those might be, I want lots of amenities and little to no responsibilities. A picturesque, marriage and family, endless amounts of experiences. I would love to have financial stability to the degree that I never had to tell myself no. I'll settle for the aging process so long as it's sustained by good health. Everybody wants to go to heaven, or at least their version of heaven, but nobody wants to die. We live in a world that already offers us most of everything that we could possibly want for the good life. Money, possessions, sexual experiences, all-inclusive vacations, world travel, fine dining, Amazon same-day delivery, (laughs) DoorDash, Uber Eats. What amazing amenities. We have beautiful parks, a revitalized city, even parks for dogs. We have dozens of coffee shops and breweries to keep us busy. We've got access to all of that. And according to world history and certainly global standards, what more could we want? What more could we want? And yet, therapists across our city are booked. We've got access to the good life. We would all define it different. We have many of the things that we thought would define the good life, and yet therapists are booked. We live discontent that we don't have enough, and we're afraid that what we do have will be taken away from us. And behind all of our definitions of the good life is a fear of what's on the other side. We want to push off death We're simultaneously in our cultural moment obsessed with death and we're haunted by it. We're obsessed with it to the degree that we're trying to figure out some way to deal with it. We'll even trivialize it through movies and and media and entertainment. If I can experience death abstracted from me on a screen, then maybe I can have an encounter with it that makes it not so terrifying. And at the same time, we're haunted by it. Because no matter how much we try to trivialize it, We know it's coming for us. And it doesn't tend to care whether or not you're ready for it. Death doesn't seem to wait for anniversaries or birthdays or the holidays to be over. One author refers to death as the great wrecking ball. Death is the issue that makes every other issue trivial. And if you have doubts about its significance, then just go to a hospital or a funeral or talk to a parent who has recently lost a child. And you will discover very quickly that the apparent normalcy of everyday life, that's the sham. Death is the great wrecking ball that destroys everything. Death doesn't play favorites and it levels the playing field. And so no matter how hard you try to deny it or to pretend that it's not there, There are three wolves that are sitting in the corner of your life all the time. They're snarling, and they're showing you their teeth, and their names are sin, death, and judgment. Culture tries to tell us that sin isn't real, that we actually shouldn't fear that wolf, And we like to come up with our own rationale for what judgment is or is not so as to feel better about that. But what's ironic is that both sin and judgment point to death because you can't explain that away. And death forces us to deal with sin and judgment whether you want to or not. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die In John chapter 10, Jesus is going to say some stuff this morning about who he is, the reason he came, and the power that he has to deal with those three wolves that are crouching at your door and mine. Where we pick up in the passage, Jesus is in the midst of another back and forth with the religious elites of his day that are deeply opposed to him. In verses 11 and 14 of this passage, Jesus is going to identify himself with a really powerful title. He's going to say, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. In the midst of this conversation, those he was having it with that day would have known exactly what he meant by that title. Jesus isn't saying something metaphorical about himself as if to say, you know, I'm, li- I'm kind of like a good shepherd, This is not a metaphorical saying. This is saying something absolute, saying something about who he is as the living God. He's drawing on the rich language of the Old Testament where God is described as the shepherd of his people. Think about the famous 23rd Psalm where David prays, The Lord is my shepherd. When Jesus gives this title to himself, what he's saying is, I am the Lord that David is praying to. I am that shepherd. I am Yahweh standing in front of you. This is a massive thing that he says. He's setting the context for his relationship to humanity, and especially those who would look to him as his sheep. And so as the good shepherd, what he says Who he is and what he does is all done with authority. Jesus is not just some hired philosopher or prophet that's come to speak about the human condition but can't do anything about it. He's not a coward who would tell us about the wolves of sin, death, and judgment, but be unable to do anything about them. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as a definitive owner who is able to define consequence for us, He's able to warn us because he knows the warnings. He's able to speak to realities of your experience and mine. But he's also able to speak with power and with mercy to do something about it. You see, a hired hand loves his own life more than the sheep. But a shepherd, a shepherd loves his sheep more than his own life, even at the cost of his own life. And so to put it another way, Jesus sees the wolves that are a great threat to the sheep, and he's moved to action. So from our side, it looks like this. Will anyone stand up for me? The human cry is something like that. Will anyone take notice of me? Does anyone see me? Have you ever felt that before? Can anyone do something about the chaos that's not just outside of me? Can someone do something about the chaos that I don't want to talk about that's inside of me? And from his side, the good shepherd says, yes. Yes. Look at what he says in verse 17. Jesus starts with this amazing line, for this reason, the Father loves me, comma. Hold that for a second. See, whatever's on the other side of that comma for you and for me is of first most importance. Foremost importance. Whatever's on the other side of that is at the blazing center of God the Father's love and delight for His Son. Whatever is on the other side of that stands at the apex of everything that Jesus came to do and to be as the Good Shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. But He brackets this thought in verse 18. He ends it like this This is the charge I've received from the Father. This is the reason the Father loves me. This is the charge I've received from my Father. The reason the Father loves me is because I do what he's asked me to do, and all that for the sake of the sheep. And so what is it? Look again at 17, the whole thing. For this reason, the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay my life down that I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Good Friday and Easter in one sentence. Why does he lay his life down four times in this passage? He stresses that he does this. In verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18, the Bible makes clear that the reason Jesus lays his life down is for sin, yours and mine. Now we're in an interesting moment culturally where We're told that sin is just a moral religious construct, that it's not real, that it really isn't of any consequence, that all of us pretty well just decide right from wrong on our own devices, according to our own ideas. And that the last thing that we need is a religious scare tactic, like a word sin, to keep us as good people or to keep us from being bad people. But if that's your definition of sin, that's actually nothing at all, then what, what do you call the 17 school shootings across our country in just this calendar year? If sin is nothing, then what do you call that? What, what do you call the host of other horrors that we could keep naming down a list that are around us all the time? Maybe you say, well, I don't call that sin, I call that wickedness, or I call that evil. Okay, but where did that come from? Like, what's under that? What's under the wickedness and evil? What's the source of that? The biblical word for that is sin. When evils like that come into view, you see, we stop asking questions about why would God be so mean as to punish or judge sin? We stop asking questions like that. When those evils come into view, we start asking a different question. Why doesn't he step in and do something about it? We want his judgment in those moments. And the answer to that question is, he has done something, and he will do something. But before we get to that, we've got to see that the problem with sin isn't primarily outside of us, as as though it's just for those bad people out there. The problem with sin is also inside of us. Not a single one of us in this room for a single day would want a visible thought balloon over your head that everyone could see your real thoughts and desires exposed. Not a single one of us would want that, and why? Because if that were to happen, what's really inside of us that everyone else could see would end up outing us into the same category as the really bad people out there. We're not too different. I am and you are, by nature and choice, sinners. We're not generally good people who occasionally do bad things. We, are, we do bad things because we are sinful to the core. We have rejected God. We have rebelled against God. We have suppressed the truth of God. And we have put ourselves in the place of God to call balls and strikes over our lives. We've done this. We are selfish. We're prideful. We're unloving. We're full of envy. We're unwilling to forgive those who harm us. We're vengeful. We do the very things that God said would both harm us and other people. We're sexually immoral. We take the good gifts of God and we turn them into gods themselves as though they were the point and we worship them. You see, the problem is not just with people out there. Romans 6 is going to say then, the wages of sin, the payment of sin, is death, Our sin has unleashed brokenness and dysfunction and death into God's good world. Hey, listen, our relationships prove it. Our internal desires and thoughts prove it. Our words and actions prove it. We have become slaves to sin. We know no other way. And as the result, as the result for the way that you and I have played roulette with the death, with with the wolf of sin, his two friends, death and judgment, show up And they're what we deserve. And so this is why. This is why what Jesus says in John 10 is so big about him being the good shepherd. It's this staggering burden of his love. When Jesus says that I'm the shepherd that lays down my life for the sheep, he's saying that the reason I've come is to place myself between my sheep and the thing that's ravaging them. That it would ravage me instead. I've come to do for the sheep what they can't do for themselves, what we won't do for ourselves, even if we could. He had no sin to bear. He had no sin. Our sin is against him, and death was not his to bear. It's ours. And judgment was not his to undergo. It was his to deal out because our rejection against him. And yet, he laid down his life for my sin, He died your death, and he took our judgment in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, hold this crazy line, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, to become a curse for us. He knew no sin. Why would God do that? Why? What's the blazing center of of the love of the Father? That is the reason that Jesus came, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He absorbed in his body the judgment for our wanderings so that we might go free. He laid himself between us and the thing that was ravaging us. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, that is our wrongdoing. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities, that is our sin. And upon him was the chastisement, was the sentence, the death sentence that brought us peace. He did it in substitution for us. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on to him. The iniquity of us all. To see the death of Jesus in the right way is to say, That should have been me. That should have been me. But notice in verse 18 how he says he lays down his life. Guys, this is massive. He says in 18, No one takes my life from me, I'm not a victim. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Notice he says, I have the authority to lay it down. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, death doesn't come to me. The wolf doesn't come after me. I go out to the wolf on my own terms. He's different. No one took his life from him. Listen, the betrayal of Judas didn't take his life from him. The religious leaders didn't take his life from him. Neither Herod nor Pilate took his life from him. The crowds that yelled crucify, they didn't do it. The Roman soldiers that mocked him and eventually pierced him, they didn't take his life from him. You and I, our sin, the reason he laid it down, didn't take it from him. We didn't demand it from him. He willingly laid it down. Willingly did it. There's no one like Jesus. The wolf is coming for all of us. Death didn't come to Jesus. Jesus went out to death. Jesus went out to death on his own authority and in our place. Death doesn't have a claim on Jesus. Jesus made a claim on death. Jesus went out to make a claim on death in our place for our sin to take our judgment. And notice how he finishes this in verse 18. No one takes it from me, he says. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. The greatest and in all, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is Easter. You realize that you and I aren't here today doing any of this. You haven't put on your pastels. We don't have flowers on the stage. None of this is happening today if only the first half of the verse is true. If only the first half of the verse is true, that means that the sheep have been left without a shepherd. It would mean that the shepherd isn't all that good. It would mean that the wolves that we fear are worse than we thought they were. If they devoured him, there's no hope for us. If only the first half of the verse is true, it would mean that the man who claimed to be God was lying. That God isn't real or worse. He is or was, but now he's dead. If only the first half of the verse... If Jesus only laid down his life, we very likely, do you realize, we very likely would have never even heard his name. He would be just another one who was making crazy claims, but then died. The brutality and humiliation of Roman crucifixion was actually designed to erase a person's name from history. And yet... Instead of erasing his name from history, Roman crucifixion created the context ordained by God whereby Jesus would be given the name that is above every name. Name that is above every name. They tried to erase him and they couldn't. The reason that we're here today, the reason why when the sun rose across the globe, Christians rose with it, identify themselves as followers of Jesus. Why? Because death didn't lay a claim on Jesus. Jesus laid a claim on death. So he lay there for three days, cold and dark. And then on that first Easter morning, He pulled the most swagger move in all of history and he folded up his own grave clothes. Like he folded them up as if to say nice and neat, you're no longer needed. And he made good on his words, I have the authority to take up my life again. The only thing that was left dead in the tomb of Jesus that first Easter morning was death itself. And so just sit with the majesty of these words for a moment. I have the authority to lay it down. He says, and I have the authority. Just fathom what kind of authority that is. To demand life to come back again. Pastor John Piper comments on this so well. He says, Anyone who makes a statement like that is either mentally deranged, lying, or they're God. Jesus says, I have authority from inside of death as a dead man to take life back again when I please. Now, what's the point here? He says. Well, which is harder, to control when you die or to give yourself life again once you're dead? Which is harder? To say, I can lay my life down on my own initiative or to say, I will take my life back again after I'm dead? The answer to that question is obvious, and that's the point. If Jesus could and did take his life back again from the dead, then he was free indeed. Death didn't make a claim on him. It was the other way around. And so he made good on these words, and this means, this means everything for us. The fact that he didn't just say these words smack dab in the middle of John's gospel in chapter 10, but he made good on these words as John's gospel unfolds, means everything for us. It means that he really is who he says he is. He really is. It means that death really has been defeated. I know we still taste the sting of it now. We'll talk about that in just a second. But it means that it will not get the last word. It means that Jesus has satisfied the judgment of God for our sins. To pull this metaphor the whole way through, the resurrection means that the good shepherd has defanged the wolves. Defanged them. Saint Athanasius says it like this Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, the passers by sneer at him, hit him, abuse him. Why? No longer afraid of his cruelty and rage? Because the ruler has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded by the Savior of the cross. And so let me finish today with three things on why the resurrection matters. Why does this matter? Number one, sins can really be forgiven. Sins can really, really be forgiven. I've been in the game too long and I've had too many conversations with people who would say, I can ascend intellectually that my sins are forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. The resurrection means that your feelings don't dictate to you what's true. Truth, truth, capital T truth, will not fold to your feelings. The tomb is still empty. Romans chapter 4, this is amazing. Jesus, our Lord, he was delivered up for our trespasses. That's Good Friday. He was delivered up. He was crucified for our sins, but he was raised for our justification. The resurrection means that for any who look to Jesus, you can have confidence that you have peace with God. End of sentence. Like some of you wonder, like, have I done too much? Have I gone too far? I'm not sure I have enough faith. The good news of the resurrection is this. With sins forgiven, It is not about the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's not about how much faith you have or how little faith you have to have sins forgiven. It's about who is your faith in? And he emptied the tomb for your justification. The resurrection means there's a new judgment for you. You're no longer under your sins before God. You are justified. You're free from the payment of sin Because he paid it, and you're now received by God. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. You can stop beating yourself up. And you can stop trying to prove yourself. You can stop beating yourself up, and you can stop trying to prove yourself. He already said, it's finished. And when he emptied the tomb, he proved it. The second piece Death doesn't get the last word. I know that we still experience real sorrow and sit through the pain of funerals. I spoke with a sweet young lady after the last service who talked about this is one year since her husband committed suicide. Like, that's, that's real. She took up resurrection hope with me right here in this room, last service. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. We will only feel that sting a little while longer. Scripture says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each comes in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. What he's, he's using harvest language to say what happened first in Jesus is the sign of a harvest just like that to come. And that's going to happen at his coming for those who belong to Christ. The resurrection of Jesus points to your future resurrection and all those who belong to him. Death and the grave have been defeated. They will not get the last word. And one day, one day they will be destroyed. Definite in Christ. And that's the final move today. A new creation is coming. New creation is coming. The resurrection of Jesus means that he really is the king. He's ruling and reigning right now. Even as you listen to this sermon, he is praying for you. The scripture says that as the resurrected king at the right hand of God, he intercedes for us because he always lives. You've been prayed for by Jesus as long as you've been in the service and that doesn't stop. All of history is bending to Jesus even when it may not seem so now. He's coming again to restore our souls spiritually spiritually. He's coming again to resurrect our bodies physically. He's also coming again to restore the whole world as he made it to be. Scholar N.T. Wright, I love this. The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and you are now invited to belong to it. Listen, death and all his friends are on the way out the door. Restoration is coming where every ounce of death, decay, and brokenness is no longer allowed on the earth. No more sickness, no more cancer, no more suffering, no more pandemics, no more violent political polarization because there won't be any confused, uh, anyone confused on who the true king really is. No more loss. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And so everyone wants their own version of heaven. Everyone wants their own version of heaven. But there is no heaven without the good shepherd. The presence of the good shepherd is heaven. And the good life that we're looking for is only found in the good shepherd who with his own life Died in your place and in mine and took it up again. The Good Shepherd is the good life. The invitation of Easter Sunday is say yes to Him. Say yes to Him. Say yes to Him. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you that <laughs> thank you that you could make a statement without flinching with full confidence about the authority given to you by the Father to do such great work on our behalf. Father, I for one am no person to have my sins forgiven. But that's only possible because someone as majestic as you could step in and pay for those sins. If sins can be paid for, they will surely be paid for by the innocent, precious blood of King Jesus. And the empty tomb proves it really is finished. Father, thank you for those truths. And I pray for anyone here who's considering Jesus They would know the invitation of the good shepherd still stands today. Bring dead hearts to life, Holy Spirit. You've done it once, do it again. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.